So as David comes, uh, many of you have uh, prayed for him and uh, uh, without ever really knowing who he was. So um, David is a young man that I met quite a few years ago at a camp uh, in Medina, Texas. And I remember uh, he and a few other young men just volunteered to come and kind of thank God, stay outside with all the youth so that us old people could stay inside in the air conditioning. Uh, but that week I saw his heart and I began to pray because God just laid him on my, on my heart to just begin to pray for him as he had something very special for him to do. And when I sat and just kind of watched him grow and he would call me sometimes and say, Hey, I'm going to do such and such. And I just sitting there thinking, wow. Okay. Um, to the point that it became a reminder to me what faith looks like. And so I want to say publicly to this young man that I thank you for reminding me what faith looks like. And I thank you for being faithful. Maybe in the beginning it was a Paul and Timothy relationship, but I think the roles sometimes reverse. And the young man has been a true inspiration to me. And I am so thankful that you are going to be blessed this morning to hear what God has laid on his heart and a little bit about his story. Um, his wife, Caitlin, uh, how long have y'all been married now? Four whole months. Four whole months. <laughs> Hold on to your seats. Yeah, there you go. So, Caitlin, if you don't mind, would you stand and just let the people see who actually is nicer in the group? There you go. The, the better looking of the two. The better looking, there you go. So... <laughs> But um, just like a lot of us men, he married up, and uh, so we uh, certainly want to just pray for him this morning. So, Dave, if you would, you come, I'm going to pray for you. And Father, I thank you for this young man, and Lord, I thank you for the faith that he has shown, Father, not just to me, but Father, to, to hundreds and if not thousands, God, that have seen his faithfulness. Lord, I'm sure that there have been times where he's been away from the states that he has thought, why am I here? Yet, Father, you have always shown up, and you have always shown him that you can use a young man from Porter, Texas, to go all over the world to reach thousands of people for you. Father, bless he and Caitlin now, just uh, God, right now, just bless him as he stands in this pulpit. And we trust him to you, God, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tom. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this boys camp out in the... Medina, Texas, but my, my biggest memory is um, we just, you know, put out some sleeping bags under the stars one night, and we're sleeping, and I'm dead asleep, and all of a sudden, you know, when something crawls on your arm, doesn't matter how asleep you are, you wake up pretty quick, and I woke up with a scorpion on my arm, and then proceeded to wake up the rest of the camp by my reaction, so uh, <laughs> good times in Medina, Texas, would recommend it only to a few, um, but we're going to be in, in the book of First Kings this morning. 1 Kings chapter 8, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there, and at some point we'll jump over to Ephesians 2 if you want to like stick a pinky finger there. Um, it'll be there for a long time, but that's a good way to do it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to be with you guys this morning. I've, I've been in Pine Island a handful of times here. Um, the only person I probably go back further than with Tom is with Doug. Uh, I don't know where Doug went, but um, there he is. Uh, I just remember fond memories with Doug is, is doing a youth lock-in in this very church. And that's something kind of like going to Vietnam together. There's just things you don't, you don't forget, stick with you for life. And uh, so, yeah, I appreciate Doug, too, and just that time. I don't know. I'll just always, always remember that. Um, it was a good time. So, um, yeah, as Tom said, um, me and Tom met back almost maybe 10 years now, if not more, um, which is weird to think about. But Tom came into my life during a certain season where uh, I had grown up, I had grown up in the church uh, a lot of my family fell away from church, so in many ways I was often in church kind of trying to figure it out on my own. I remember listening to a sermon once, and it was talking about the value of mentorship and the value of, of having, uh, for, for young boys in the faith, to have Christian men to, to walk alongside. And I remember reading this, and I was just sitting at my computer after this sermon finished. I'm like, God, I, I need a mentor. Um, and then within like a month or two, I met, I met Tom, and uh, he quickly became that for me. And so he's just been a gift to, to walk alongside life with, and um, to get to come and, and visit you guys. And, and, and like you said, many of you guys don't know me, but you're actually a pretty crucial part of, of my story and, and what I get to do. Um, 
So I, uh, I grew up in Porter, Texas, like he said, and, um, and uh, once I graduated from, from Baylor University, I actually went uh, overseas for a while. Many of you got to meet me, I think, right before I, I went overseas, and I, I went to, to Cairo, Egypt, and then spent some time in Yemen, and, and that's a picture that's up on the screen of, of that time. I spent uh, two years overseas working with a, a population that growing up in the church, especially the church in the, in the Southern Baptist tradition that I was told... Uh, off the bat, we don't like them. Um, we stay away from them, and that is uh, Arab Muslims. Um, so for me, you know, I grew up a, a child of 9/11. So my introduction to Muslims was what we all saw on 9/11. And and even growing up in the church, to be frankly honest, I, I, I very vividly remember one time being in a Sunday school classroom, and somebody saying, "We just need to bomb all of them. Just all of them over there. We just that's that's the, the type of action that we should take." And I remember as a, young, as a young man trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus, just all of a sudden feeling this, this disconnect in my heart. I'm like, well, the other thing that we talk about all the time is that uh, the people who die without a knowledge of Christ, they go, they go to hell, and, and the only thing that awaits them is, is judgment. And I'm like, so if we're saying that, that our response to our Muslim neighbors is to, is to bomb them, then, then all of a sudden I'm like, well, that means we're, we're just wanting to, to cast a whole bunch of people. And yeah, you know, you see where I'm going with that thought process. Like something didn't make sense to me, and I began to wrestle with that in my heart before God, and and over time, God uh, just began to, to work in my heart this, this calling, and I'll share more of, about that at the, at the end of this time, but God called me to actually go and love these people that I had grown up hearing that actually I needed to avoid and um, at worst even, even hate. And so um, that just took me on a journey overseas where I spent two years learning Arabic and uh, getting to learn the, the Arab culture. I worked with a people group called the Yemeni people. Has anybody here ever heard of the country of Yemen? Made a cameo on an episode of Friends once. That's about what most people say. Um, so Yemen's over by Saudi Arabia, and it's got one of the longest-running civil wars in the country going on right now. And so I, re- I worked with uh, populations of, of Yemeni refugees living in, in Cairo, Egypt. And uh, I went through that for two years, and um, it came time to go back to the States. And, and I was talking to God, and I was like, God, I, well, I, I've learned Arabic. I understand this culture. And, you know, where do you, where do you want me to go next? And... Um, as I was meeting Yemeni people, if they were immigrating to the United States, they would say, I'm either going to Detroit, Michigan, or, or New York City, when I would be like, well, where are you going? And so I began to pray, God, am I going to Detroit, or am I going to New York City? And, and God opened doors in, in New York City, so I moved there in 2018, and began to try to figure out what would it look like to minister to the same people I was working with overseas, but now um, their populations here in, in the United States. And in that process, I, I met my wife, Caitlin. We met on a on a balcony in, uh, I think, 2018 as well. And then we ignored each other for about two years. Um, so if you want a good strategy to find a wife, no, I'm kidding. Um, God was just good. He had both of us in really good seasons where we were just learning to walk with him and to be faithful to him. And then when the time was right, he just opened our eyes to each other um, at the beginning of, of 2020. Um, and then a year later, um, we're married. And so this was our wedding back in, back in May. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a joyous occasion. And um, she's just been a good, a good help to me, and it's been great just getting to figure out how to do, do life together. Um, and yeah, and then now what we're up to is uh, we run a program called Karama Kids, which I think is uh, the other picture that was just up. Um, and so basically what we've done is, is tried to mobilize Christians to be uh, loving neighbors to their Muslim neighbors. Um, the, the neighborhood that we live in, which is called Bay Ridge, it's in, in southern Brooklyn, is full of uh, a migrant population from Yemen. And what I was surprised to find out when I moved from, from the Middle East to New York, um, where there, there's still a decent amount of churches in New York. It's not like Texas, but there's, there's a, at least a couple in every neighborhood. And I found that we had Christians living right next to Muslims, but they never interacted. Um, and it's assumed like, oh, they're Muslims, they're living in a Christian land, they'll hear the gospel. But I remember talking to a Yemeni man on the street once in New York, and I was talking to him, he said he'd, he'd lived there for about 20 years, he still, he still barely spoke any English. I said, well, have you ever met a Christian before? And he said, nope, you're the first one. Um, and so I began to just think through, like, okay, how can I start to get Muslims interacting with Christians and Christians interacting with Muslims? And um, through, through things I can't even, don't have time to explain, but God has somehow formed this program called Karama Kids, which is taking Christians and mobilizing them to serve Muslim families through tutoring their, their kids as they go through the, the New York City school system. So... That's a bit of, of my story, and I'll share a bit more stories as I, as I share the, from the Word this morning, um, but that's, that's where we're coming from. That's the, the very abbreviated version, um, but I just want to share that because, because I also want to just be able to say thank you. Um, Pine Island Baptist is, is, is one of the churches that from day one, um, both just, just prayerfully and financially has supported my ministry, and, and so the work that I've gotten to do overseas and do now in, 
and Brooklyn would be impossible without churches like you guys that pray and, and not just pray, but like just have a heart to, to be able to send the gospel and send um, Christ's love to other parts of the globe, whether that's in Cairo, in Yemen, or, or even in, in Brooklyn. So I just want to say thank you guys for, for partnering and, and not just, just financially, but um, for, for being such an encouragement to me. The, the times that I get to come and visit you guys, um, I've always left encouraged. So, so thank you for that. Um, and so my goal this morning is actually to be able to kind of flip the tables a bit. And I just want to encourage you guys. I don't really have much of an agenda this morning. I'm not trying to, to change the world through one sermon. Um, and, but I just want to take some time and pour into you guys and try to stir up your heart as a reminder of, of who is this great God that we serve. Um, where is our hope? I, I, was, uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and a guy posed this question. It's from one of the old creeds, but like, it, it posed this question, what is our hope in life and death? And it's, it's, it's in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I know we hear these things in the church, but I just want to be able to take some time this morning and just, just look back at, at the Old Testament and say, who is our God? And, and, and what is his heart towards us? And what is his heart towards the nations? And what is his heart, um, his heart for us? And so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. And it's going to follow a bit of an interesting trajectory. Okay, we're going to start like way up here in the clouds. We're going to start with a really, really lofty idea. Lofty just means like, philosophical, theological, like when you read a psalm that says like God sits enthroned above the heavens, like that's a lofty idea where we kind of scratch our heads like that sounds pretty, not really sure what that means. So we're going to start up there in this, this realm of the lofty. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go down to the realm of the human. Of, okay, so what does that mean for humans? What does that mean for the way that God interacts with our world? And then we're going to get down to, to the nitty gritty of like, so what do we do with it? Um, so we're going to go from high to human to hands. That's the way to think about the trajectory of our, of our time this morning. So uh, we're going to be in, in the book of First Kings, and this is kind of coming out of an overflow of my own time with the Lord of what he's been doing uh, in me over the past couple months. I don't know, I got married, and for some reason, God just has, like, led me to the Old Testament. Um, and I've just been pouring through these pages saying, like, okay, God, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Um, and I've just been fascinated with the, the story of the prophets and the story of King David and now his son Solomon. And so we're going to start in First Kings chapter 8. Uh, we're actually in verses 1 through 65, so if somebody could volunteer to read. No? Okay. Uh, I'm kidding. We're not going to read all of it. Um, in fact, we're going to be flying through bits and pieces of it, so, so go ahead and buckle up. Um, but we're going to start in, uh, let's start in chapter 10. We're only just going to read a couple of verses, and then I'm going to pray for us. I'm reading out of the, the New King James Version, um, but uh, feel free to read out of whatever you're comfortable with. Um, so chapter 8, verse 10, and it says this, and it says, And it came to pass... When the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Let's pray for us. Father, we're going to read, um, Lord, just of when you came down and, and your presence filled the temple, Lord, of when you came down and you dwelt among men, Lord. And I pray, uh, Lord, that you would help us to see with fresh eyes that you still dwell among us today, Father, and that this is... Uh, an ultimate reality that shapes everything that we do and how we see the world. And so, Father, would you come? Would you, by your Spirit's power, minister to us, Father? I pray that the words out of my mouth would be from you, um, and that, Lord, you would help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, we're, we're dealing with uh, King Solomon, right? And if you know, if you ever heard of King Solomon, Solomon is, is my son, King David's son. I'm just kidding. Um, but Solomon is, is the son of King David, and he just finished building the temple of the Lord. Um, you might say, like, what is the temple of the Lord? We hear about it all the time. Uh, the temple of the Lord was basically like one of the, the biggest religious mansions that had ever been built at, in the time. And, and so what had happened was David, he had come, and he had reigned as king, and David was the first righteous king of Israel. He said to be a, a man after God's own heart. And David had a vision. He said, Lord, I want to build a house for you to dwell in. And the Lord said, not yet. Your son's going to build it. And so sure enough, Solomon steps in that king, and, and, and Solomon like ushers in the golden age of Israel. Israel had never prospered before as they had during the, the, the reign of King Solomon. There's, there's wealth, and there's, there's intellect, there's wisdom. I was actually um, I was reading this, this piece of poetry the other day. I don't usually always read poetry, um, but I, I found this piece of poetry written by like a Persian poet like way back in the day. So these are people whose, whose culture was very near to like Solomon's culture back in the Bible. And they told an interesting story of when the queen of Sheba tried to visit Solomon, she brought home cartloads of, uh, cartloads of gold. And when she finally got to Solomon, it ended up being very embarrassing because she found that the, the ground was actually paved with gold. She said, I might as well have brought him dirt. So that's like the level of prosperity that Israel's going through. It's like gold is like, 
basically like dirt. And so they've never seen a time like this. And so during this time, Solomon comes and he builds the temple. And this is like, I mean, imagine just like, I don't know if Amazon came in and dropped down a factory in the middle of, of the pasture here and they're bringing in materials from all over the world. Like that's what's going on. They're bringing in wood from Lebanon and, and gold from who knows where. And, and he ends up successfully um, building this temple and, and, and his enemies are, are disposed of. He's got treaties, he's got alliances. Um, and this thing is massive. And I know you're already asking the questions of, of David, like, why should we care? We're not Jewish. And I'm going to get there. But the first thing that we need to know is, is that he builds the temple. And what does the temple mean um, during Solomon's day? And it, it poses this, this one reality that, that finally God dwells among people. Because beforehand, before, before Solomon built the temple, so from 1 Kings all the way back to Genesis after the fall, what we saw was God kind of just dipping into reality and then, and then going off somewhere else, right? Like we see in the, the story of the Israelites, right? Like they're leaving Egypt and that God goes before them in a, in a cloud of fire um, and in a pillar of smoke. And, and so he's there, but he's kind of like, you know, doing different things. He's unapproachable. We see the, uh, also during this time the Ark of the Covenant, which is, uh, if you don't know what the Ark is, was basically this really fancy box that carried uh, things that signified God's presence. This was dwelling in a, in a place called Shiloh before the temple was built. So God's presence was always something over there. It might be something that was going before the Israelites or behind the Israelites. It might be something that visited a prophet for a time, or it might have been hanging out in the, the town of Shiloh. But, but now the, the, the presence of the Lord was going to be in a place, and it was going to be stationary, and it was going to be experienceable. Okay, you guys tracking with me? So, so I just got married, right? Uh, and one thing that I quickly learned in marriage is that like, if you want to cultivate a relationship, you kind of have to be in the same place uh, for more than five minutes. Um, when I, um, before I got married and when I, was, when I was overseas and things like that, at one point I was, I was scrolling through my phone the other day and actually I saw this picture of one of the last times I moved in Brooklyn before um, I had settled down for a minute. All the things that I owned were in, in one big backpack and a suitcase um, because I was always bouncing from place to place. Um, but I quickly discovered, and this is a joyful thing, that when you get, you get married and you want to enter into an intimate relationship with somebody, you get to, you get to hang out in one place for, for more than five minutes. And so that's kind of what, what's going on here with, with the people of, of Israel. And is in many ways, he's, God is staking his claim among, among the people of Israel. The people of Israel are going to have a place to look to where they know they can encounter the Lord their God. Um, for some of you, this might be like your dinner table, right? Like you and your spouse or your family, I mean, you got football practices and office work and people are going to school and it's all throughout the day, you guys, there's just everywhere, a thousand places at once. But you know, at like seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, if you're like me and Caitlin sometimes, you know you're going to descend upon this dinner table and that that's where your family's going to meet. And so this is kind of what the temple of the Lord was, was functioning like for Israel. It was going to be their place where they knew they could look and find and meet with the Lord, their God. Um, and I know a lot of times, there's, there's a bit of a disconnect there for us as, as Christians because we're like, okay, yeah, the temple, that's, that's the old covenant. You know, that doesn't really apply to us. Like now we, and we're going we're gonna to get to all this, but, but the thing I want us to understand is when they build the temple of the Lord and, and the book of Kings, that this actually happens. This is actually what God does. It's not just some, symbolic. So look, at, look back at the passage that we just read in, in verse 10. It said, and it came to pass when the priests, so this is after they had just built the temple and they went in and they, they consecrated it. They dedicated it to the Lord. And as they're leaving the temple, it says that a cloud filled the house of the Lord. And it says, so the priests could not even continue ministering. They couldn't even keep doing their jobs because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so we see that this is actually what happened. God's presence came down and it filled, uh, and it filled this place because Solomon's idea of God, it wasn't, it wasn't small. He wasn't like, I've got I've to hold on God and I'm going to force him into this building. And now God's going to operate how I want. He had this this large idea of God, and, but he felt like God had called him to, to build this temple. Look, uh, we're going to jump really quick to uh, chapter 8, verse 27. And this is what I'm trying to say is, is that this, this actually happened, this, this idea of God coming and dwelling among men, and it wasn't this result. The temple wasn't a result of, of Solomon thinking he could control God. Uh, when you look at verse 27, this is Solomon now praying, and he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven... Uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So he realizes right away, he's built this temple, but there's no way it can actually contain the majesty of the Lord. Verse, 20, verse 28 says, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. 
that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place uh, of which you have said, my name shall be there, and that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And so um, that, that, that line that he uses in 29, I want us to look at that really quick, and then, then we're going to move on. But, but God says, my name will dwell there. That's a, another translation I said. This one that says, my name will remain there. And, and I know that's a bit weird, but we see this all throughout the Old Testament. When God is referring to uh, himself, he'll say, my name. And in the Bible, when we see God referring to his own name, this means, this means his personhood, his presence. So not just his, his operating, not just his hand that's, that's in everything, but like his actual personhood. Um, yeah, I know like we don't, we don't really use that to refer to ourselves like my name. Like you don't call your wife like, hey, honey, my name's on the way. Um, but this is kind of how God refers to, to his, intimus, his intimate presence that he's going to be personally there. And so we see that that's what the temple was in theory, right? Like that's our loftiness, that, that the presence of God, that God himself is going to dwell among men. But what did this mean on a human level? What does this mean practically? And so uh, we see this in the rest of uh, chapter 8 where we start looking at the temple functions of of what are the people's expectations now that God dwells among them. Uh, let's look really quick at, uh, at verse 30. So there's going to be four functions that we see that the temple has, okay? Uh, the first one is hearing that God's going to hear. The second one is justice. And then there's this, uh, this function about redemption. And then the last one is mission. And so I just want to, we're going to fly through these real quick. Um, and so if you look at, at 30, the first thing that we're going to see is that the, the fact that God dwells among men now means that there's confidence that, that God hears. So verse 30, it says, And you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven in your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So God's presence to the people of Israel in the temple meant that now they had assurance of two things. They had assurance of two things. First of all, that God hears them. And second of all, that there is forgiveness. Because beforehand, it was a bit of, it was a, bit of a toss-up, wasn't it? Like, we didn't, we didn't actually know. It reminds me of, like, when me and, and my wife were making uh, wedding invitations. It happened during this time when, like, for some reason, the post office in New York just decided to, like, take a month off. Uh, no announcement. They're just like, yeah, I think we're done. Um, and so we were, like, trying to send letters to people literally, like, one zip code away, and they, they weren't arriving. And so we're sending out letters. And it's kind of like, I hope these make it. Um, and that's kind of, I think, a bit of, like, what it was before the temple where they, they could pray to God, but he might hear them. They might not. They really had no way of being being sure. And then now as Solomon's praying, it's saying, saying, no, we, we know we can pray and that, and that he'll, he'll hear. It's like moving from sending out carrier pigeons to being able to send out text messages with read receipts. Uh, do you guys ever do read receipts in your text message? It's a bit awkward. It's like, okay, they read it. It's been five hours. I still don't know what they want for dinner. Um, and so that's kind of what's going on, right? They've, they've upgraded. They're no longer sending carrier pigeons. Um, they're, sending, they're sending text me- messages. So God, God's presence means that he he hears and he forgives. And the second thing is that there's justice. So we see this in verse 31 and 32. It says, When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, it comes and takes an oath before your, your altar in this temple. Then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked and bringing the way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So, so simply put, Simply put is um, that now they're going to have confidence that, that guilty people will be recognized as guilty before the Lord and that innocent people will be recognized as innocent. And we're going to talk about that more uh, in a bit. The third one is redemption. Redemption. What do I mean by redemption? So this one's actually verses 33 through 40. And in 33 through 40, Solomon's praying about three things. He prays about famine. He prays about drought. And he prays about war. And he basically says that now because the temple of God is among us, that we have confidence that these things do not have the final word. So that people no longer feel powerless over these, these elements of the world that they feel so uncontrolled, or that they, they can't control. And I know, I mean, even hearing Doug's prayer uh, before he, he got off stage, like, I know that's a reality we still sit in today, right? Like, you watch, you watch the news and you kind of just feel like you need to just walk away and bury your head, your head in the sand. It feels like we're, we're in this world where we can't control so many things, whether it's what governments are mandating or disasters that are happening, and we just feel feel so powerless, but the fact that God's presence dwells among us means that these things do not have the final, wor- uh, final word, that instead God will redeem these things. And then the final one, the final one is mission, and this is in verses 41 through 43. And this is really, really important. The first time I read this, it actually blew my mind. Me and my wife looked at this and were like, we think Solomon was actually a bit prophetic about, about who God was. Like he kind of, there's these moments when you realize, like, I think Solomon actually met with the Lord our God because the things that he's talking about here kind of reminds me of things that that I've heard preached today way after the Old Covenant. 
So verse uh, 41 through 43, it says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you as they do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And so this is huge. This is huge because we know that that Israel has built the temple and that God's presence dwells there. But God also has this heart and Solomon articulates in his prayer that God's name would be known outside of just Israel. Um, The true test of God's God's presence um, is is that it doesn't just remain stationary. It's always going outward. And so whenever they built the temple, it wasn't that that God was just going to stay there and that, that Israel had a monopoly on the presence of God, that it was actually going to go outwards. I think I have a picture of uh, two buildings from, this was from Cairo, if we, we can get it up. And I thought this, this, really, uh, this really kind of exemplified what, what I think I was, I was picking up here. So, so there's two buildings in this picture. This is in Cairo, Egypt. The one on the left is a church, uh, an old ancient Orthodox church. And the, right on, the one on the right is, a, is an Islamic mosque. And I thought this was really funny because I think they're kind of operating like what we often expect God to operate in our minds, that, that we have this building and this is where the presence of God meets. And it doesn't, it doesn't meet over anywhere else. And, and so we have two people here who basically have claimed a monopoly on God's presence. And, and the idea here is you have to come to one of these buildings to get God's presence. But we see in the reality of whenever they build the temple of the Lord, that God's presence is actually going to go out and dwell among the foreigners, that God's presence isn't just monopolized by people. Like we don't uh, and this is what's important to realize when Solomon built the temple. It wasn't like he, he took God's present, presence and like stuffed it in a little shoebox and like now we contain it. Um, really all it was was this, this intersection between, between God's glory and his sacredness and um, in our lives here, here on earth. And I mean, this is a natural thing. I think we do it too. Like uh, when we realize we've, exter- we've experienced the presence of God, that I think our humanity and our pride wants to say like now we own it, um, that now we... Uh, we have the presence of God and, and that we can kind of sit in our churches and think like, okay, like this is where it's at. This is where we're safe. This is where we know we've encountered God and anybody else who wants a piece of that, uh, they have to come to us. But we see that God's presence doesn't actually operate like that. That God coming and dwelling among Israel meant that his presence would go out and be for people outside of Israel too. Um, and so we're going to talk about that more in a, in a minute. Um, but a problem happens, Right. So, so Solomon builds this amazing temple. We see there's proof that God's presence comes and it, and it dwells uh, in this place. But at the end of the day, um, a physical temple still wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for God's uh, presence to dwell in. And, and why is that? It's because this temple was actually still the result of the old covenant, right? In the Bible, we have two covenants. We have the old covenant, which is what we read in the Old Testament, and the new covenant, which happens with Christ. And in the old covenant, it was all based upon human obedience, and if there's anything that we know as humans when it comes to obedience is that we're generally kind of bad at it. Um, and so this is what we see, that, that God's blessing and God's dwelling among Israel depended on the obedience of, of David and his lineage. And when you read the book of Solomon, for all the, the beauty that, that Solomon had and all the prosperity, Solomon was also a flawed, a flawed man. And uh, he ended up having, I forget how much, like 300 concubines, 300 wives. And it said that these wives turned his heart away from the Lord his God, and he began to worship foreign gods. And when that disobedient happens, eventually it plays out over the next couple hundred years as, as Israel ends up falling. The temple's destroyed by the Babylonians and, and the, the Israelites are carted away. And so we see that what we, what we actually needed, while yes, this physical temple is where God's presence dwell, that now all of a sudden we're in need of a, of a new temple, not built by the hands of men, but built by the hands of God and dependent on God's character, not dependent on man's obedience. Um, and that's actually what we end up getting. Because see, even though Solomon was disobedient and the temple was destroyed, God's heart's posture didn't change. And I think that's, that's really, really important news for us to understand is our, our disobedience doesn't change God's heart posture towards his children. His desire, even after disobedience, was that uh, he would dwell with us. Um, so even with the temple being destroyed, this is still his plan. And, and the good news is like the solitary location of where the temple was in Jerusalem that was never supposed to be the, the pinnacle of, the, of what it meant for God to dwell with his people. This was only just like a precursor or, or a prototype, if you will. Um, if you've ended up to, to save a spot in Ephesians 2, we're going to jump there really quick. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, verse 19. 
because the temple was good. God's presence dwelled in there. Remember, I'm not saying that that was all just Jewish superstition. I think it was, it was part of God revealing his heart. Um, and then what we see in the New Testament is God culminates his heart and he culminates his plan. <clears throat> so Ephesians 2 uh, ch- uh, verse 19 says this. It says, uh, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, uh, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having built up on the foundations, <clears throat> having built, built up on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what did we just read? That there is still a temple, but who is the temple? It says the people of God now become the temple. How and why? Because the presence of God has come and now dwells in us as human beings. Do you guys see that, trans- that transition, that this, this glorious idea that, that Solomon had been called to, that he was going to build a place for the Spirit of God to dwell in, that God's presence would dwell with the people, and that falls apart, and God says, you know what, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to do it myself, and he's the one that comes, and he pours his presence out onto the people, and so that now every single believer that walks around functions as this temple, this intersection where God's presence meets the reality of human existence. Um, that's amazing. That's crazy, and it's, it's hard. I get it. I, I, I was raised in church, too. I get it. I, I heard these things growing up, and you're like, okay, cool. They're talking about that again. And, you know, we have the box to put it in, but go back and read uh, verse 10 that we looked at in 1 Kings chapter 8. It said, it said, the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple, and the, and the, the priests couldn't even do their work. Like, the presence of God was, was so big, and, and now what we're saying is that same presence, that same reality dwells in us as believers. <clears throat> the, the fact that, like, we can't even work because God's presence is in us, and and then look again at, at verse 27 where <clears throat> Solomon was lamenting. He's like, I built this whole temple for you. And, and even after all the effort, I forget how many years it took him to build this temple, but it took decades, it took decades um, to, to build this temple. And, and Solomon's like almost lamenting. He's like, and I still don't think it's big enough to, to hold your presence because your presence fills the heavens of heavens. And then we get to Ephesians 2 and it says, this presence that fills the heavens of heavens now fills the hearts of believers who are being built into a temple. And that's incredible. And, and so that's, that's what it means that God dwells in us. And so it's, for me, it's like I can read that and be like, how does God choose that? And, and I want to I encourage you guys because a lot of you, I mean, you probably looked in a mirror this morning just like I did. And sometimes I don't, I don't feel like a temple, but the reality that God's presence dwells in us is not a, it's not a feeling only. Yes, there are times we, we feel filled with the Spirit and we feel so close to God, but the, the reality that God fills us isn't just like whether or not we feel the warm fuzzies when we wake up in the, the morning. I would... I came face to face with this reality all the time when I was working overseas among Muslims. Just to be, just to be very honest, on my worst days working with Muslims, I would just be like, God, one could knock on my door and ask me to, to explain who Jesus is, and I, I would probably just, just close it. I can't do it today. I'm just not feeling it. I feel, I feel frustrated. I feel stressed. I feel homesick. And, and, you know, I'm seeing the realities of the world, and there's just nothing. Like, I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps to be a good missionary. Um, and I kid you not, on those days were, were the days where crazy, amazing things would happen. I remember one day, just to tell a quick story, and this is one of my favorite to tell this example. I, I get up and I have to go to an Arabic class at, at 8 in the morning, and I love studying Arabic. I love studying Arabic. It was so much fun. Uh, but there, even with that, there's, there's very few things I actually want to do at 8 a.m. And so I'm getting up and, and I'm going, and, and Cairo is the city of 20 million, okay? Have you ever, anybody here ever been to New York City? Maybe? Yeah, I got, I got a couple. Sweet. So, so imagine New York, right? Double the population of New York. New York's 10 million. Double it to 20 million. So that's Cairo. And then cripple the infrastructure. And so... Like, you know, there's, there's buses, you don't know where they're going, there's trains, they kind of sometimes work. And so, so getting from point A to point B is like going on a jungle trek in a, in a city. And so I remember, you know, I'm, I'm walking, I'm frustrated, and like, it, you know, I didn't leave the house like filling on fire for Jesus. I'm just like, Lord help. Like, that's the only prayer I could pray in the morning. And I get on this train, and, and when you're riding the train in Cairo, it functions a bit socially different there because it's, it's so packed. So what you start doing is as your stop's getting close, because you're you're basically, you know, your feet aren't even on the ground. People are, are packed in so tight. And so you say a word that says, Nazalege in Arabic, which means like, you know, my stop. Or you're saying, is your stop coming? And, and so what they'll do is they'll just kind of move an inch and you start to kind of shepherd people towards the door about five minutes out from your stop. And so I, I asked one guy, I'm like, Nazalege. And he looks at me kind of funny and he just goes, where are you from? And I'm like, no, I've, I've been in the country for like a year and a half. I know I speak good enough Arabic. Like, like don't, don't humor me as the foreigner this morning. Like I'm, like, I'm not saying I'm being a good Christian this morning. Don't get me wrong. I was being a very bad one. And I'm just like, I'm frustrated. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to this guy. And sure enough, the door opens. And I just like brush past him, right? And, 
And as I'm like brushing past him, I immediately feel the Lord convict me. And he's like, David, um, that guy obviously wasn't from here. And so I said, okay, Lord, if, if I see him again, I'll talk to him. And then I put my head down. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm not a good missionary today. Um, and so I'm walking up the steps trying to look at only my feet and nothing else. And then sure enough, I feel somebody like on my hip, you know, and I'm just like, oh. And I look over and, and that's him. And I'm just like, oh, okay. And so I start, he was Arab. So I start talking to Arabic and I'm like, hey, like, where, where are you from? And it turns out he's from Yemen. And I'm like, okay, great. Um, and I was like, well, I, I love the Yemeni people. I love to hear their story. Like, why don't we, why don't we get coffee one day? You know, and I don't even know why these words are coming out of my mouth because in my heart, I'm just like, I just want to get to my Arabic class and then like go into a, a nap-induced coma. And, um, and so I get his number and we agree to meet and I meet with him and we start sharing stories and he finds out I'm a Christian. He's like, oh my gosh, you're a Christian. He's like, I've been trying to meet a Christian. He's like, I've been in Yemen and haven't been able to meet Christians and like, I just want to know what they believe. And, and so we talk and I'm like, if I, if I bring you a Bible, will, will you read it? He's like, yeah, 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 I'll read it. And so I end up bringing him a Bible and then he, I've never to this day seen somebody so excited to get a Bible. He, it was like his chair was on fire. He jumps up and he's like, David, you have, you have no idea what this means to me. He's like, I've been, I've been searching every bookshop in Cairo trying to find a Bible and now I finally have one. He says, thank you for giving me this. I'm going to read all of it. And so I say all that to say is, is being filled with the presence of God, being the dwelling place of God among, among the earth, it doesn't mean that we suddenly feel really, really good, like we're at the best Christian conference of our lives. A lot of times it just means that we're making ourselves available for God to work. Often, at least in my case, I don't know about you guys, in, in spite of us, often in spite of us. And that's just been the reality that I've seen in my life, that it's, that it's not a feeling. And so we're on, the, we're on the human level, right? We talked about lofty, and now we're on the human level where the, the presence of God is dwelling in the hearts of men. Um, and so we need to ask again, like, what does that mean? How does that function? What are the functions of, uh, of God dwelling in the hearts of men? Well, actually, it's the, the same functions that we just looked at that happened in the ancient temple in Israel. It's still the same. Well, yes, we could, we could break this up. We can make it more. Um, but for the sake of the sermon, we're going to keep it to the same four. And so the four, remember, we have forgiveness, justice, redemption, and mission. All these still operate on the same reality, even though now God dwells in the hearts of men and not in a temple made by the hands of men. So let's look at forgiveness. Um, what does it mean that God dwells in us? When we pray, we have confidence that God hears us. Okay, when we pray, knowing that God dwells among men, we have confidence that he hears us. We don't send carrier pigeons to heaven. Interesting thing about how carrier pigeons work, because um, sometimes I have too much free time, so I look these things up. Um, when you, when you have a carrier pigeon, you basically get them really used to one place. And then when you travel, you take the pigeon with you. And if you need to send a message back to that same place, you tie in a message and you, you send it back. And so it takes it there. But the pigeon stays there. The pigeon doesn't come back to you. Um, and so when we pray, it's not like that. We're not sending prayers up to heaven and, and they just stay in heaven. And we're like, all right, I hope, hope they got that one. Um, but no, we know that when we, when we pray that we have confidence God hears us. And, and when we speak to God, we don't have to enter into the temple, but we can speak to him in the stillness and the quietness of our souls. Um, the second is justice, that we can, we can both act justly, knowing that God dwells in us, and we can also be confident that, confident that God is just, even when the enemy accuses us. And even whenever people in the world look at us and say that you're not just, or they, they, they call us guilty when we know we're, we're, we're innocent, we don't actually have to fight our own battles anymore. And that doesn't mean it's going to go right. You cannot fight your own battle and still have to pay up some money in court, but we know that the ultimate judge who sees us, who hears us, that he knows our innocence and that he will declare our innocence. <laughs> Me and my wife went on our honeymoon in, in North Carolina, and for some reason the rental car agency tacked us with like a $400 bill because um, according to them, we, we like uh, uninstalled the tracking system at 2 in the morning, um, which was like ludicrous to us. And we, we tried to talk to them like we don't even know where to find a tracking system. Like we were just in the mountains. Could that have something to do wrong? Nobody answered our phone call. The charge gets removed. Then it gets reinstated. And, to the, and, and eventually we just reached a point where like, we just have to be comfortable with like our own knowledge of our innocence and, and stop trying to argue our case before men. And, and, and those can be hard because right, we still kind of lost, but our confidence is knowing that God knows our innocence and that we were still able to conduct ourselves in that way in a way that honored him. Um, the third one is redemption. Um, God's presence dwelling among men, and this is something we have to understand uh, in the church, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the world's suddenly a better place. It doesn't mean that everything suddenly goes our way. All those realities that we talked about in First Kings, war, famine, drought, those are all still realities today. Um, but we have confidence when we know that God dwells in us, um, that we can overcome those things, that nothing is wasted, that uh, when we're in fruitless seasons in life and work and marriage and ministry, like the God undoes plagues. He undoes drought. He undoes war. He undoes famine. 
Um, and we look forward to that, and we have hope in that. So even when things aren't going our way, even when life is hard, we know that we already have victory in the Lord. And the third one, and this is the one that I could preach on for like another hour, but um, for the sake of time, we'll, we'll just hit on a couple things. But the, the reality of mission has never been uh, more important and also never been easier now that God's presence dwells in us at the end of the day. Because see, God's presence dwelling in you, and this is really, really important for us to understand. And I'm preaching this to myself first. I hope you guys understand that. Like as I sat down and write this, I'm like wincing too. God's presence dwelling in us doesn't mean that God's presence ends with us. Um, when we say that God's presence dwelling in us ends with us, it's only for us, and it's also just about what he's telling us and how, how we feel, that's, that's what prosperity gospel is. It's when the gospel is just for you and only you. Um, but just as the foreigners would encounter God at the temple and know his glory, so when unbelievers see our lives, and when God's leading us in, in, in obedience toward him, they, they also encounter the glory of God. Um, you know, this is, this is straight from the mouth of Jesus. He says that, um, people will see your good works and then glorify your Father in heaven. And so the, the, the presence of God dwelling in us means that now we also have something to offer the rest of the world. And, and yeah, like, you know, as, as somebody who's, who's tried to work this out, and, and like I shared from my story, like I'm failing at it probably more times than, than not, um, we have to ask, like, is that our posture? Do we, do we walk out of our houses in the morning with an expectation that I'm filled with the presence of God? So if somebody comes to me with a need or a question, um, I'll have something to offer them, even if it's not for my own strength, even if I'm weary, that there's always this part of, God to, uh, this, always this part of God's heart within me that I can, that I can offer uh, anyone else. Or, or the, the flip side, it's like what we saw with that picture of the church, that, that we cling to God's presence within us as a monopoly. And I'm not saying that we, like, we, di- we, we disvalue like the, the reality of us sitting with God and enjoying his presence and coming to a church and being filled. We need those things. We can't operate without them. But we also have to have the reality that the, the presence of God dwelling within us does not just stay in us. Amen. And so, um, and the good news is like, this is a work that he's already doing. Okay. Like I grew up in the church also like thinking like I had to go out and like figure out how I was going to win the world to Christ or figure out how I was going to do all the things that God told me to do. But the reality is that God is already at work. He's already doing all these things. So when we step out of our hearts, and this is my prayer most mornings, like I don't always wake up with like the one vision of like, I know what God's calling me to do to minister today. But sometimes I just wake up and I say, God, whatever you're doing to build your kingdom today, let me be a part of it. And I've always seen him be very, very faithful to to, to answer that prayer. And, and in Brooklyn, some days it's like, oh, I get to, to you know, minister to one of the Arabs in the community or have a good conversation with a Muslim. And then some days it's like I've ran into a Puerto Rican friend from church that's going through something, and I just, that's who God's put me, uh, put my life to minister. I had an old professor at Baylor that used to say, uh, for him, he, he realized his ministry changed when he realized he wasn't experiencing interruptions to his ministry. He realized the interruptions were his ministry. And so next time you find yourself interrupted, and somebody's demanding your time and you don't want to give it to them, take a step back and be like, oh, maybe this is actually where God's calling me to minister today. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, that's, that's a big part of, of my testimony and, and my calling that, that God, he has something bigger for us often than our conceptions of God. Uh, and that, that's often how it worked whenever I was first being called, I felt like, to minister to Muslims. I, uh, we had like two Muslims in my high school growing up. I, I went to high school just, just north of Houston. And one was this guy named Kasim, and Kasim was a really, really cool guy, but he was Muslim, I was Christian, he was smart, I was smart, and so the best thing that we could always do was just argue. And I would go home and I would watch all these theological apologetic videos on YouTube, you know, and I would know all these arguments, and he'd be posting stuff on MySpace, which if you know what MySpace is, you now know how old I am. Um, I would be posting things on MySpace, you know, and we were like, we were friends, but like when it came to religion, we would just flip the switch and we're like, I gotta win. I got to win. And I remember, like, that was all, like, my, my heart's desire was um, that, that Kasim would know that I was right and he was wrong, right? And we were, like, we were like that Christian and that Muslim church in the picture. Like, I was the Christian church, and I didn't make sure the Muslim church across the street knew that I was right, and this is where God dwelled, not here. And this is one of the few times where God's just done a work in my heart overnight. Uh, I woke up one morning. I have no idea what did it. But all of a sudden, I woke up and my heart was burdened for Kasim. And I said, I don't want him to just feel like that I'm right and he's wrong. I want him to know that he's, he's loved by God and God has provided for him a savior. Um, and it changed my heart. I, I never got to, I mean, I was, I was friendlier towards Kasim. We never got to that point, but it began this trajectory of me of looking like, okay, what does it mean to actually 
walk alongside my Muslim neighbor in love, not in, not in combat, not in just needing to be right because I have the monopoly on God, but actually joining in what God was already doing, uh, how he's already at work. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my story. And, and there's work to do. God has put his, his presence in us for a purpose, um, but it's a beautiful purpose. And we don't bear that load. We're joining in his work. And, and this is the last thing that I'll leave you guys because I think anytime I speak on, on mission, um, this is the biggest thing that God's taught me over the last five, six years, however, however long I've walked in this. We're all familiar with the Great Commission, correct? Like we know, like I grew up, it's probably one of the first things I memorized in vacation Bible school. You know, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does anybody know what he says right after that? You can shout it out if you want. Say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Be my witnesses. He says, and I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the age. Okay, so this isn't a mission that Jesus sends us out on, says, come back when you're finished. It's a mission that Jesus sends us out on, that he's already gone ahead of us and already goes with us. Jesus sends us into the labor field, whether that's foreign missions, whether that's, whether that's living the gospel out among your families, among your workplace, among the communities here that you don't, you don't always align with, you don't always agree with, the people and, and the country and in the state that just grieve your heart or frustrate you, whether it's walking it out among them. Jesus calls us to these things, not because he has things for us to do that he can't do himself, but he's calling you to these things so that he can give you more of himself. His desire is that he would be with you always, even to the end of the age, and that you would live in that reality. Um, but church, this is something that we do together. It's not something that uh, I've been blessed. Um, I, I, don't, I still don't know how I get to do what I do. Um, I still don't, don't know how God's put me in this place. Um, and every day that I get to do it, it's, it's a gift. Um, but this isn't something that, you know, like somebody in my case who's gotten to do missions as vocation, like this isn't his reality and everybody else does something else. This is what we're just all doing in the, in the strength that God has called us to. For me, God just wired me a little weird where I was like, yeah, I'll go learn Arabic um, and, and try to live over there. But many of you, he's given you a heart for your neighborhood. He's given you a heart for your family and for, for the networks that you're in. Um, and just don't see that as an accident. See that as a divinely placed purpose that he's calling you to walk with him in. Um, and that's just what I wanted to encourage you guys with, that we are now that living temple, that we are now that intersection. Because of anything we've done, because of any way we've earned it, no. But because God saw fit to dwell among men and has made a temple with his own hands based on his character and his love for us, not based on uh, human will. Um, church, thank you for letting me share my heart with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then I'm going to hand it over to Tom. Father God, um, yeah, Lord, even as I preach these words, I still don't really even know how to do them justice, Lord. I don't even know how to, how to always let this take root in my own heart and realize the majesty, Father. But we want, we want to try, Lord, and we want to cast ourselves at, at your feet and say, Lord, have your way with us, Lord. Make us into your temple. Help us to walk this life, Lord. We know that the things that you call us to do aren't easy, Lord. We know they're hard but we know that you also call them to us because you want to show your strength and your glory and your power, Father. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters at Pine Island. Father, I pray, Lord, that as they walk in this community, as they try to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus, often in a place that's way harder where, where everybody else also claims to know Jesus. And, Lord, I know that can be really tricky to figure out, Lord, but I pray that you would give them wisdom, Lord, to sift through the culture, but to find Jesus and to follow him, Lord, and that, that it would be in a way, Lord, that, that shakes their community, that shakes their families, Father, and that it would just the weight of who Jesus is and who they are, Lord, as the temple of God would, would bear with them daily, Father, that even in their weaknesses, Father, and even in, and sometimes, Lord, even just the ordinariness where I can look around and be like, I don't, I don't really know what to do. Everybody around me claims to be a Christian as well, Father, that you would show them how you're calling them to minister, Lord. Give them hearts of love for each other, Father. I pray that when this community looks at Pine Island, that they would see unity, that they would say unity that that declares Jesus, Father. I pray that they would also look beyond these four walls, that they would reach out to the people that make them uncomfortable, the people that aren't like them, Father, and that these would also be the way that you show that your gospel is real, that your glory is real, and that it dwells in their hearts as believers, Father. I pray that if there's anybody here that's, that's not experiencing that reality, that's never felt what it's like for God to come and dwell and to start to, to change them and to transform them, Lord, that you would bring conviction, um, Father, and that you would reveal to their heart that your desire is that they would repent, Lord, that they would trust you and that your spirit could come and dwell among them. 
Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for what they've meant and the work that you've called me to do, Father. I pray that you would keep blessing them with, with a vision for a gospel that is global, that doesn't stop in these four walls, Lord. And even if they, they can't be the ones going out, Father, that they would find people who are and that they would mobilize them and support them and send them. And Lord, not only send them, but that they would pray for them, Father, that their hearts would be burdened for the work that they do, and that their part would be to just pray and pray and pray to see the Lord's work done. God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What a blessing. I appreciate David so much and his heart. And uh, as as he was sharing, I'm sitting there being convicted over a number of things. And one of those, obviously, uh, just when when God interrupts us, we often get a little frustrated. And it's in those interruptions that God is usually sent us somebody that desperately needs to hear uh, of his kindness. And the only way they're going to do that is through us. And and the other part that you spoke to, my wife uh, will amen this, is, you know, there's times that, that I just have to be right, even when I'm wrong. And that's that way in relationships a lot of times. Uh, when we have somebody that we don't agree with, instead of showing them Christ, we just have to be right. And it and that absolutely interrupts what God intended for that moment. And so I, I greatly appreciate you, David, and I appreciate you guys being here. Um, I'm going to ask David afterwards to be at the back, just so if you want to share anything with him, uh, if you want to do anything for them, they are there. Um, and I just appreciate so much uh, their willingness to be here this morning and, and to share. I've been wanting this to happen for a long time, and uh, I'm definitely not disappointed for you being here. What you shared was, was on point and so good. But this morning, if, if you need to get something right with God, this altar will be open when they sing. If you want to be a part of this church, you know our heart here. Um, you see an extended part of that through this message and what God is doing through David. That's, that's our fingers, our hands are in the middle of all that through financial support and through prayer. But folks, you've heard a challenge this morning to do more than what you're doing. And wow, is that good to know that there are still Godly young men and women saying, God, wherever you call me, I will go. Well, God's called you right where you are. It could be your, as he said, your home, your job, whatever, doesn't matter. He has given us a mission field. We don't have to get on an airplane to go somewhere. Your mission field could be right in your own home or at your job. So let's stand together. We're going to sing.